Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Complete Center's Guide. I am your host, Tyler Fowler, and tonight on CSG, we're discussing the human soul. Is the soul of man immortal? What is the biblical understanding of what we call the soul? And how does this play a part on that day when we all stand before God to be judged? I've asked Chris Date from Rethinking Hell to join us tonight to help give some biblical answers to debate within Christendom to these questions and more I'm sure will be raised tonight. If you, the listener, have a question for Chris or myself and you want to weigh in on this discussion, that number to dial is 1-855-450-6624. But first, Noah, brother, what is going on, man? How's your week been? I have been better than I deserve to see a life for Dave Ramsey. Life has been absolutely fantastic. And you know, the thing is, Tyler, it's one of the, like, Every once in a while, I walk outside and I see what the Bible is talking about when it says that you can look around and see the evidence of God because there'd be no reason, there'd be no plausible explanation as to why you would make things as aesthetically pleasing as they are. Everything uh, having a reason and everything looking gorgeous and, and, and being pleasing to the human eye. There'd be no reason to do that unless you were trying to please a creature that you have created. Right. You you hear me say it all the time on the show, perspective is everything. And whenever you view the world through born-again eyes, through through regenerated, you, you see God and you see all of these different things in a way that you've never seen them before. So, Noah, I know exactly what you're talking about, man. Uh, but, Chris Date, we got you on again for, what is this, maybe the third time uh, that you've been a guest on CSG, man. And we thank you uh, for coming on to discuss this really important topic. Uh, is the soul immortal? I know there's a lot of people believe that it is. So, you know, we're going to get into where did this come from? Where did this I- ideology come from? I- is it biblical? Um, but but first, dude, how, how's your week been? We kind of was talking off air, you know, that things are changing and uh, it's getting closer to your uh, teaching a date to start. So how's, how's life been, man? Life's been really good. Thanks. Uh, side note, I, I, I think I've only been on your show once before, not twice. I could be wrong about that though. Um, uh, but either way, I'm, I'm right. uh, honored to be back on the show again. I appreciate it. Yeah. Things have been good. Uh, I am still working on preparing lectures for beginning biblical Hebrew, which I'll be teaching at Trinity college of the Bible and theological seminary beginning next year. Uh, I also, uh, have just begun a THD at, Trinity Seminary. I'm going to be doing a PhD in theological apologetics, and I'll be focusing in my thesis on sort of the impact that various doctrines of hell, as well as humankind's fear of death, uh, the impact of those things on the apologetics endeavor. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that, and then at hopefully at some point thereafter, I'll be able to go on to do an Old Testament PhD, which is kind of where my dream is. So yeah, I mean, balls are balls are rolling. Um, I'm I'm think God is good. <laughs> just put it that God, way. God is good. And, and just for those who don't know you, Chris, Rethinking Hell, what what is Rethinking Hell? I know you got a YouTube channel, Facebook page. Um, it's a podcast, but can you describe what Rethinking Hell is and what you guys focus on there primarily? Rethinking Hell is a ministry of conservative evangelical Christians who have become convinced by their reading of Scripture that the Bible does not teach the traditional view of hell as eternal torment, but rather teaches a doctrine that is often called annihilationism, uh, but I think is more accurately termed conditional immortality. Um, And our mission is firstly to promote and defend this view um, in, in, as you say, podcast form, uh, YouTube videos. Uh, 
those, but also uh, annual conferences, um, books. We've published a couple of books. You know, there's a variety of, of ways that we're doing that. Um, but coming in maybe close second to that first um, to that first uh, part of our mission is we're, we try really hard. We don't always succeed, but we try really hard to model and um, encourage charitable, loving treatment of uh, Christians toward one another when they disagree on this topic. Because far too often, it seems as if this is a topic over which Christians unnecessarily divide. It's a topic that tends to generate more heat than light. And our goal is to show that this isn't something we need to divide over. We can disagree fervently and debate, you know, vigorously, um, but we can and should uh, work together, fellowship together, minister together to to lock arm in arm and take mm-hmm. the, the gospel to a dying world that so desperately needs it. So that's kind of, that's that's the gist of what Rethinking Hell is all about. And I think that that is so important. So just for those who don't know, I've been on the fence and, and from the from the first time that Chris came on, then he did the debate uh, with Ross Burns on the show. And and just from that moment, Chris has presented arguments and, and biblical arguments. These aren't Chris's arguments. These are biblical arguments um, for conditional immortality. And I think it starts one one of the main primary aspects of this conversation even is what we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, the immortality of the soul. I want to quote um, Charles Hodge real quick uh, from his Systematic uh, Theology, Volume 3, page 759. He says this, If the Bible says that the sufferings of the lost are to be everlasting, they are to endure forever, unless it can be shown either that the soul is not immortal or that the scriptures elsewhere teach that those sufferings are to come to an end. And again, that's his Systematic Theology, Volume 3. So I think that this is a, a very, a very important subject. Is the soul of man uh, immortal? And, 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 and from what Charles Hodge says, you know, unless it can be shown either that the soul is not immortal, I think, it's, I think it can be shown. And Chris, you would agree that I think scripturally the Bible, I mean, it preaches to this, don't it? Is, is, is the soul mortal. Well, it depends on what you mean by that. Um, most people, yeah. at least today, by immortality, when they're talking about the immortality of the soul, they mean it will go on living forever and it's incapable of ever dying, um, right. which, in fact, it's, it's, it's part of the reason, it's a major driving reason why some Christians believe in eternal torment is because they assume that the soul is immortal and will never die, and so it's either got to go to one place or the other, uh, you know, the good place or the bad place. Um, and, and to the extent that that's what immortality of the soul might refer to. Uh, not only does the Bible not teach that, it actively teaches against it. Uh, and, and we can get into that uh, if you like. But yeah. but historically, there has been at least one other use of that idea or that phrase, immortality of the soul. And that is the, the soul it is alleged, um, continues to exist consciously beyond natural death. And what they, what it is meant uh, when it's used in this way is that the soul is immortal in the sense that it won't naturally die. The body naturally dies, but the soul will not. And if, um, and if it's, if, if, if God doesn't supernaturally intervene, then it will go on living forever. Um, and in that sense of the phrase, um, I have my own personal answer to that question, but it's really irrelevant to the, 
the discussion we're having around hell because even right. if the soul does survive natural death and is later reunited with resurrected bodies um then even if that's the case that doesn't in any way shape or form preclude god from destroying that soul on the day of judgment and so i'm frankly not even interested at least in the context of the discussion about hell in defending um my take on that sense of the question of the soul's immortality. But, but again, going back to the first meaning, will the soul live forever? No, I mean, it will for the saved, uh, Mm -hmm. but, but the Bible militates against believing that it will go on living forever um, in the case of the lost. Now, when you say it will for the saved, we as Christians, as those who are united to Christ, we are given eternal life. And the way that I've kind of, and Chris, feel free to, you know, correct this or anything like that or tweak it. But, in eternal life, there is an aspect of immortality that, that does mean to live forever, to live without end. There, there's a difference, it seems, between immortal and eternal, right? Immortal mean, just means without end, but eternal means to be without beginning or without end, right? So God is eternal. He's, he's also immortal. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think that that's able to be held up biblically. That's okay. Um, yeah, which is I'm not. I'm not trying to you know attack you or or, or no. Or, yeah, uh, right, say right. Anything. Um, the the I think the distinction that you're referring to is a distinction between two English words, uh, ever uh, eternal and everlasting. Everlasting okay. means will last forever. Eternal in English often means, especially as a word distinct from everlasting, eternal often means uh, never-ending and has no beginning. Um, but 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 that's not the, the Bible knows of no such distinction. Um, the, the the Greek words and and Hebrew phrases that that might uh, refer to uh, eternal or everlasting are the same in either case, and there's no there's no distinction between the words that are used. So. Um, so so there's that, and then as for immortal, immortal doesn't mean um, uh, it, biblically anyway. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean um, going on forever. It means incapable of dying or or never dying. That's literally what the Greek words okay. that might be translated immortal in the New Testament. Um, that's what they literally mean. So, for example, in First Corinthians fifteen, Paul uses two Greek words, athanasia and aftharsia. And and for people that have even a little bit of linguistics background, they'll recognize that that first letter A at the beginning of those words, and it's it's used to negate something. And and um, athanasia literally means not dying, and aftharsia means not being correct in the sense of decaying like a dead body does so so immortal does have does does have in mind uh, um everlastingness but it's more specific than everlastingness because what it's saying is everlasting is life right and so thank you for the correction so immortal then incapable of dying would be accurately or, or biblical or, or at the very least, never dying. Um, everybody's, except for God, is incapable of dying. Even in the eschaton, um, you know, after being raised and made immortal, God could, if he so chose, end our lives and our existence. Um, right. but, uh, but we won't, and it's because the Bible says right. we'll be made immortal. Right, absolutely. That's the promise of God that those who are united to Christ are, are to receive. Correct. That's right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So, where? Let me ask you this then. So, let's go back in history a little bit. Where does this concept of the immortality of the soul even begin with? If it's, you know, we talk kind of like Old Testament texts, and you know, you referenced Genesis uh, before we uh, went on air. But where does this really begin and to take off at the immortality of the soul concept? 
my understanding, and you know, your listeners and you guys uh, should, should should take this with a grain of salt. But my understanding is that it was during, at least in the case of um, the Jewish people, it began with their Hellenization. Hellenization um, refers to the influence of um, Greek thought on the Jewish people and other people groups that Alexander the Great conquered. I mean, that's that's where Hellenization comes from. Every everyone that Alexander the Great um, conquered uh, underwent. A, a degree of influence from Greek thought, and my understanding is that it was in Greek thought, as well as many other surrounding, uh, many of Israel's other surrounding pagan neighbors. Um, they believed that when you die, you continue to be conscious uh, in, in some sort, and in Greek thought, particularly, you had the concept of the soul as some as a non-physical or immaterial entity that continues to exist consciously after death. And I would contend that you don't see Jewish people. Um, thinking in such terms until after they've been heavily influenced by uh, by Greek thought. Is that why then that the, there's it, there's not really a reference to the immortality of the soul or the mortality of the soul in the Old Testament text? That just wasn't a thought at their time that they were wrestling with, or how, how would that how would you define that or describe that? <laughs> Well, I would take it a step further and say it's yeah. not just that the Old Testament knows nothing of the immortality of the soul. I suggest that it knows nothing of a soul at all. Um, now, that doesn't mean that souls don't exist in that traditional understanding of the word. Um, there are Old Testament texts that are argued to indicate that the Jewish people believed in some sort of conscious uh, afterlife immediately following death. But it never, I repeat, never um characterizes that as having something to do with a person's immaterial soul. It doesn't even know of such language. The, the Old Testament conceives of human persons as... Um, as bodies of dust that have been made animate by God's life-giving breath. So you see that, for example, in Genesis 2-7, when, when Yahweh forms Adam from dust of the ground. And so at this point, you've got this lifeless, motionless, inert, active um, body of, of dirt, and it's, it's totally lifeless. And then the text goes on to say that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And it's at that point when you have the body breathing, that the man becomes a living creature, Genesis 2-7 says. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament, and it's not just humans, by the way, that are so defined. It's also um, all other kinds of animals as well. In fact, in the flood narrative, um, God says, for example, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth in Genesis 6-17 to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. <coughs> Excuse me under heaven. And then it goes on to say in like 715 that the animals went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. So so this is the Old Testament uh, conception of physical creatures like human beings. We are, and animals are, bodies made of dirt, bodies sharing kind of the same properties as dirt, uh, but that have been made, that have been breathed life into sure. by God. Now, whether or not we continue to be conscious after death, again, is something that we can debate. Uh, you know, we, we can focus on a few texts in the Old Testament, but again, it never um, in any way, shape or form, number one, suggests that will go on forever. And number two, never locates that ongoing consciousness in something called a soul. Right, and because it seems like from the curse that God placed on Adam, from dust you were made to dust you shall return, it seems that there's like even a transference of, you know, a, a decomposition. Like Adam goes back to what he was made from, right? 
I mean, it sure seems that way to me, but I think that at the very least, some Christians who could still, and many do still, uh, hold to the view of hell that I'm here defending, they Mm -hmm. would say that the text there in the the verse that you're talking about isn't meant to say that Adam as a whole person returns to the dust, but that his body will. And that his and that his soul will go on existing, but but that isn't something the text says. That's something right. that has to be um, uh, reconciled um, based on other texts that are alleged to indicate as much. Right. It seems like the dying there is the life breath being taken from Adam. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. And so, in fact, the the author mm-hmm. of Ecclesiastes um, expresses some doubt over whether all creatures, uh, all physical creatures, human beings, cows, birds, mm-hmm. etc., whether all uh, physical creatures, our breath of life returns to God who gave it, or if it's only humans with the breath of all other animals just retur- just returning to the dirt. Um, sure. And we could discuss what that means as well. But again, this is this is the picture: bodies breathing. That is is what human beings are, living human beings are. Right. And so just to kind of piggyback on the distinction between humans and animals, you know, in that in that breath, would you say that there's a the distinction is that man is created in the image of God, therefore that breath of life that God breathed into Adam is categorically different than him, you know, creating animals and all this all these different things. Uh, I would come close to affirming what you said. I, I, sure. I, I was I was comfortable affirming everything until you said that we have a uh, substantially different breath of life. No, I, I don't think that's oh, okay. the case at all. I, I think we are we are different as human beings from all other creatures, but it has nothing to do with the fact that we breathe the breath of life. It has to do with the fact that we are created in the image of God, and and sure. and we can talk about what that means. But I don't see any evidence that that has anything to do with the breath of life. No, and fair enough. Okay, right on. So let's so. Let me. Is it fair to say then? So the doctrine of of punishment in, for the afterlife, right? That is progressive revelation. Would that be fair to say? Um. Yes, depending upon what you mean by that. Sure. Um, we do have. Um, some indications in the Old Testament, even even old, fairly old texts, that there will be some sort of eschatological judgment, uh, at least of some sort. So, for Job. example, mm-hmm. well, Job, arguably, but but um, scholars debate whether or not Job has any such thing in mind. What is what is far more clear and less disputable, it seems to me, is. Isaiah 26, for example. Um, Isaiah 24 through 27 is sometimes called the little apocalypse of Isaiah or something like that. And it's because some um, liberal critical scholars have contended that this is characteristically um, apocalyptic literature that you don't see Jewish people using until the second century BC. And so they argue that these passages in Isaiah were written well after the titular prophet Isaiah and sure. and then like written back into Isaiah but there's no evidence for that it's not apocalyptic right. literature at all and the evidence is that it's just as old as the surrounding Isaiah text and what's important here is that in Isaiah 25 Yahweh promises to swallow up death forever one day he calls mm-hmm. it the people the, the covering over all goyim all gentiles even so it's not just jewish people i mean this isn't a national restoration because he's saying it's going to happen he's going to swallow up death the death that is afflicted all peoples, not just Jews. However, in the very next chapter, Isaiah 26, Isaiah is told that while his people will rise and live, um, the oppressors of Israel, people like Pharaoh and, and you know, uh, uh, the king of Babylon, you know, those kinds of people, they will not rise and live. And so at the very least, 
you have judgment in the sense that um, only God's people will be resurrected and go on living forever. The lost either will either won't rise at all, in which case you definitely have hardcore progressive revelation from old into New Testament because Isaiah would have just begot, would have just gotten it wrong, right? right, um, right. Or, and I think this is likelier, he means they won't rise and continue living. So they might rise but they'll be killed again and never live again after that. So, so there you've got from something like the 6th century BC, uh, at least a hint of, of uh, afterlife judgment. But you're definitely right that, the, that, that much more of the detail emerges in the intertestamental period and especially in the New Testament. It, I'd actually like to transition to that. I have the fourth book of Ezra actually in front of me, and it's the second chapter If um, for our listeners who want to follow along. Uh, it's the second chapter, and we're going to just start in verse 8 and go to 14. I think this is a beautiful picture. I, I, I love Jewish literature, Chris, because they paint with what I call word pictures. They give a beautiful description so you can see it in your mind of what's happening, and they're telling a story with it, right? And so this is what happens here. Um, verse 8 says, Woe to you, Assyria, who concealed the unrighteous in your midst, a wicked nation. Remember, now listen to this, because we're going to see this again in Second Peter. But remember what I, what I did to Sodom and Gomorrah, whose land lies in lumps of pitch and heaps of ashes. So I will do to those who have not listened to me, says the Lord Almighty. Thus says the Lord to Ezra, Tell my people that I will give them the kingdom of Jerusalem, which I was going to give to Israel. Moreover, I will take back to myself their glory and will give to these others the everlasting habitations which I had prepared for Israel. The tree of life shall give them fragrant perfume, and they shall neither toil nor become weary. Ask, and you will receive. Pray that your days may be few, that they may be shortened. The kingdom is already prepared for you. Watch. Call, O oh, call heaven and earth to witness. Now listen to this. For I left out evil and created good, because I live, says the Lord. Chris, what are your thoughts on that passage? Well, um, firstly, I'll say we need to be just a little bit careful um, okay. when we discuss for Ezra, which is um, sort of more in scholarship known better as part of Second Esdras. <laughs> but um, we need to be a little bit careful because it um, most scholars, it seems to me nowadays, date this to uh, sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So, mm. so I just want to make clear that when we discuss this text, we're not suggesting, or at least I'm not, uh, yeah. I'm not suggesting that this text is indicative of pre-Christian Jewish thought. Thought, although I do think it is, but that's just because uh, pre-Christian Jewish texts indicate similar concepts. But that having been said, um, mm. it strikes me as incredibly similar to Jude and Peter when yeah. they compare the fate of the unrighteous to the fate that befell Sodom and Gomorrah when fire fell upon them in Genesis 19 and slayed all of their inhabitants. And that seems to be... Um, that seems to be what's being described here. It's also, by the way, consistent with uh, rabbinic um, tradition from around the same time frame as captured in um, uh, the Tractate Sanhedrin of the Tosefta, for example, in which mm -hmm. um, in which the Jewish uh, the rabbis express at least at least a couple of different views. Um, one of which appears to arguably. Um, 
uh, exhibit belief that there will be a select few evildoers who do indeed suffer in Gehenna forever. Gehenna is the mm-hmm. New Testament Greek word um, translated hell. Um, but they also describe the more common view of what happens or the, or the view that the thing that is expected to happen to most um, unrighteous people, and that is they will be turned to dirt. They will vanish so so you have and the, the reason why all this is important is because um believers in the traditional view of hell who are very adamant about defending it will very often suggest that that just was the view of um the second temple jews uh sure. you know the, the intertestamental jewish literature um or at the very least it was the view that uh that is reflected in the writings that are most similar to the new testament but here we have an example and it's just one among several that suggests quite the contrary that you did have this stream at the very least one stream in jewish thought in which they um speak about the fate of the wicked in ways very consistent with the new testament and that fate is clearly death and destruction not everlasting life and misery there are multiple, multiple for anyone who has studied, you know, rabbinic Judaism or just, you know, Second Temple Judaism or Judaism in general will know that definitely eternal conscious torment was not the majority view. Right. It, it, there are different streams. It was at the very least not the only view. Sure. Um, I'm open to the possibility that it was a minority view. Uh, heck, I'd even be willing to concede if I. I would be willing to entertain the notion that it was the majority view, even. Okay. But it certainly was not the only view. That's the main point here. For for sure, absolutely. So let's um, just for those listeners, for for those who want to know kind of where we're referencing in Second Peter and Jude, Second uh, Peter two four. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into hell and lock them up in chains in utter darkness to be kept until the judgment. And if he... So hold on, hold on. Stop right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to I talk about this verse by itself before you continue, because, sure. um, because Peter is doing something here in verse 4 that's not quite the same as what he does a couple of verses later, which is what you're getting to. Moreover, okay. the translation you just read from, which is a very common way of translating this text, uses the word hell to describe what um, God has done to sinful angels. But that's not a good translation. Um, the, the whole, yeah, the whole phrase, yeah. cast them into hell, is a translation of a verb, meaning of the verb tartarao, which mm-hmm. means to cast into Tartarus. And Tartarus was, in Greek mythology, the place where semi-divine beings were, uh, you know, tortured or condemned or imprisoned or whatever. It wasn't right. where humans went. And I think that what Peter's doing here is he's first talking about is what he's doing is something, by the way, very common in the intertestamental Jewish literature. They they will offer a, a list of ex- historical examples yeah. um, of God's judgment to warn people against doing things that merit God's judgment. And Jesus in every one did of those, the same. That's right. And in every one of these lists, whenever Sodom and Gomorrah appear, and we'll be discussing that in a moment, um, they're talking about the the historical destruction uh, by fire. And we'll talk about that in in a minute. But anyway, what what Peter so what Peter is doing here is he's offering a list of historical judgments as um, as a warning against doing what would merit God's judgment in the future. But in the case of the angels, 
the reason why he says cast them into Tartarus, I think, is because of that Greek mythological distinction between where mere mortals were condemned versus where semi-divine beings were condemned. Uh, mere mortals would go to Hades, whereas these semi-divine beings would go to Tartarus. And so here Peter is saying God did some sort of did some sort of judging that is analog for the angels that is analogous to throwing them into Tartarus. But then he goes on to describe what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah as well as Noah. So now go ahead and continue. But I just wanted to make clear that he's just talked about angels and not yes. talked about hell at all. And now he's going to go on to talk about humans. Okay, and then that's where we pick up in verse 5. Thank you for that, Chris. Right. I really mm -hmm. appreciate that. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but did protect Noah, a herald of righteousness, along with seven others, when God brought a flood on an ungodly world, and if he turned to ashes the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah when he condemned them to destruction, having appointed them to serve as an example to future generations of the ungodly. Chris, you wanted to comment on that? Yeah, so, so a couple of things here. First of all, remember, as I said a moment ago, that in all of the intertestamental literature where lists like these are offered, when Sodom and Gomorrah are offered, it's their historical judgment um, by fire from heaven recorded in Genesis 19 that that is in view. That's important because some traditionalists will argue that in the parallel of this passage, which is in Jude, Jude is talking about the intermediate state, that, that Sodom and Gomorrah, when they were destroyed by fire from heaven, then went into something called eternal fire, which was a which is ongoing suffering in the intermediate state even to this day. But that's simply untenable. It's, it's not possible to hold that reading and, and, and do so consistently, because as I said, both Jude and Peter are are following in this tradition of giving a list that always includes the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire in the past. Now, with that in mind, consider that Peter is, as I said, giving a list of judgments of various types merely as, as a warning to not do what God would judge you for. Um, but when he gets to Sodom and Gomorrah, he does something a little bit more. Notice that he's 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 listed angels who, who sinned and who were cast into Tartarus, you know, in some way bound. And then he mentions the uh, Noah when all the rest of the world besides his family died. But he's still just listing examples of judgment, warning about judgment. But then when he turns in verse 6 to Sodom and Gomorrah, he adds something. He says that by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes— he made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, this is this this list uh, that was just warning about judgment in general. You know, don't do things that will merit judgment because look at these various ways God judges. Now he takes it a step further with Sodom and Gomorrah specifically, and he says they are a you know a, a perfect picture of what awaits the ungodly and what was that picture their destruction by fire them literally dying being burned up and destroyed and peter and jude uh both here say that that is the fate awaiting the ungodly it's not a picture of immortals suffering forever in fire which is what the tradition teaches it's right. a picture of mortals being destroyed by fire right right absolutely chris and and see so Kind of transitioning a little bit, but not much. I want to go to First Timothy six just real quick because whenever and and, and please expound this. Um, but it just seems to me that whenever Paul is saying, well, I'll just read it. For it's First Timothy six sixteen. 
He says he, referencing God, alone possesses immortality and lives in unapproachable light, whom no human has ever seen or is able to see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Paul is going, you know, he, he's giving an example of, of everything. He tra- it says in 13, I charge you before God who gives life to all things in Christ Jesus, who made his good confession before Pontius Pilate to obey this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's appearing the blessed, the only sovereign, the King of Kings, Lord of Lord, he will reveal the right time. And so it's giving all of these attributes of God and, and just talking about how glorious he is. But then Paul says he alone possesses immortality. Now, would the let me just ask this because I I haven't done the research on the other side, Chris. So if I'm way off in left field here, just tell me. But would the uh, uh, you know proponent of ECT say that when someone is made in the Imago Dei, that right there is you know God sharing that attribute? It's a communicable attribute of God, or is that or like I said, am I way off on that? No, I think you're exactly right. It it absolutely is a communicable attribute of God. And defenders of the doctrine of eternal torment will say that um, immortality is indeed something that God conferred to humans created in his image. So what they will typically say about this text is that what it's saying is that only God has immortality in himself. He's the only one who is um, independently immortal. All other creatures, humans included, would merely be contingently immortal or they would have conferred immortality or something along those lines. Okay. So this is where we get into then being united to God, right? Whenever a Christian, whenever someone is given eternal life in God, this is where this attribute becomes communicable. Or is this a communicable attribute of God? What do you think? Well, I think it's it's um, undeniably a communicable attribute of God because okay. even both sides of this debate believe that at least some people will be immortal. Um, so, so, so it's at the very least, so it is absolutely communicable. The question is to whom does God communicate it? Right. right. Um, the tradition says God communicates it to everybody, that God confers immortality to all human beings. Um, the doctrine of conditional immortality and, and dare I say the unanimous and clear testimony of scripture is that God only grants immortality to his people, to those united to him. And you see that in in various ways. You see it in texts that actually use uh, the word immortal. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, um, Paul is talking about the resurrection. He talks about the resurrection first of Christ and then those who are his at his coming. And that's it. He doesn't talk about the resurrection of the lost here. He does elsewhere, but here he's only talking about the resurrection of the saved. Um, And he describes it. uh, He says that in being resurrected, we will, um, uh, this mortal will put on immortality. This perishable will put on imperishability. And he says that this is because mere mortality, mere flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So, so who are the ones that Paul is saying in this passage will rise immortal? It's the saved. Why are they raised immortal? It's because they need to, it's because they're meant to inherit the kingdom of God, which can't be done by mere mortals. Well, so what does that suggest about immortality? That it's it's meant for those who are going to inherit the kingdom of God, which of course would not include the lost. Um, but, but it's not just the word immortality, it's what immortality means. So for example, in Luke 20, 35 and 36, Jesus is answering a uh, challenge by the Sadducees on the doctrine of resurrection. And he says in verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age or to the resurrection from the dead, and then in verse 36, he says, cannot die anymore. 
because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So what do we see here? That that Jesus is saying it's only those who rise counted worthy of resurrection who will remain who will be unable to die, seemingly, I think, implying that others who rise to face judgment will remain able to die. Um, and, and then you've got texts in Paul. I, I don't remember the exact text I have in mind, but, well, actually, you could probably figure it out here really quick. Um, but... But Paul, yeah, so in Romans 6, listen to this. Um, this, is, this is just amazing. Uh, in Romans 6, uh, Paul says um, in verse 5, if, this is important, if we have been united with Christ in a, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then notice what he goes on to say in verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that by uniting ourselves in faith to Christ, the one who alone has thus far risen and never died again, it is we who are united or who are so united to him who likewise will rise, never able to die again. But what does yeah. that imply about those who failed to be united to him? That they mm -hmm. will be able to die again after being raised. It's it's this this concept is just all over the place. It's it's unbelievable. Right, and I just kind of want to just keep going on verse nine there. Um, right where you stop, he is never going to die again. Why? Death no longer has mastery over him. Amen. And death no longer has mastery over the believer. But what are the wages of sin? Death. Death. Right. This is this is the wages of sin. This is what Christ saved believers from: is to never die again. This is the hope that we share. This is everything given to the believer. And the, that's right. But but let, let me let me just uh, say something in anticipation of what some of your listeners might be thinking. Sure. You and I aren't here assuming that death means to cease to exist. It's very often agreed. It's very often um, uh, alleged that we are using some sort of, uh, you know, pagan understanding of death or something like that that needs to cease yeah. to exist. No, we're not saying that. We mean death as everybody means death until they are getting into this debate, which is mm -hmm. no longer living. You see, the, uh, I, I know I might have talked about this last time I was on your show, but the doctrine of eternal torment isn't just like it's not people going to hell immediately when they die as a disembodied soul and they're suffering forever it's it's a belief that the the lost will one day rise from the dead they will come back to physical life with physical bodies muscles and lungs and eyes and so forth and they sure. will from then from then uh from that point on remain physically alive and immortal for all eternity but so that's what we that's why we're pressing this text and others into service is because um the tradition says the resurrected lost will be immortal and never die again but here we see the text pretty clearly saying that no death is in fact the wages of sin not ceasing to exist but right. not living anymore which yeah. is militates against the traditional view it's interesting this is the first time the word ceasing to exist is even came up in this conversation i think <laughs> right i mean just i yeah. mean it it has because we haven't we do mean the same thing that everybody means no longer living right so the death he died and that's why like whenever I'm raised from the dead, that's my hope is that that will never happen again, whether or not. It, here's the thing I hear the most, Chris. It's like it's 
it, it, it's not life if it's no quality of life. And you do not get that concept there. It's not the it's not about the quality of your life. That seems to me like, you know, a 20th century, you know, ideology, basically. It's like that's not what. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, let, let's let's um, steel man our uh, opponent's uh, argument here. It's okay. not um, I wouldn't say that it's sort of 21st century, you know, have your best life now, Joel Osteen type of stuff that that, you know, leads Christians to think this way. There, sure. there are. Um, there are specific biblical texts. Uh, so for example, in John 17, three, Jesus is praying to his father says, this is eternal life that they know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And what that sounds to people like is this is the definition of eternal life, colon, knowing the father and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so the sure. argument is they're defining eternal life as knowledge of God. The problem, however, is uh, firstly, the only other two places in the book of John where uh, Jesus or anybody else says that something is life, they are not saying what defines life. They are offering what produces or results in life. Uh, Jesus, for example, says that the, the commandment of his father is life. Well, obviously, he's not defining life as my father's commandment. He's saying obeying my father's commandment brings life. Um, sure. and, and, if, and if people want to understand how this kind of thing works, um, you know, lots of us have heard phrases like happiness is a good book. Right. Or mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the stage play, A Good Man, Charlie Brown, I think it is at the end of it, the cast sings a song exactly like that. They, they, they say happiness is this. Happiness is a sharpened pencil. Happiness is that whatever. Yeah. And notice what they're doing. They're not defining happiness. They're saying that all these things make them happy. Mm. Well, likewise, in John 17, three, Jesus is saying this is what results in eternal life. But he says, this is eternal life, knowledge of the Father and Jesus whom we ascend. So that argument doesn't work. And then the only other one is that there are texts which indicate, which seem to speak as if eternal life is something that we have now. Well, it can't mean living forever if we're going to die and then be raised at some point in the future. So it must mean some sort of quality of life. That's how the argument typically goes. But the problem here is that there are at least two texts in the Synoptic Gospels where eternal life is said to be something that believers will enter into when they rise. So Matthew 25, 46, for example, speaking of the final day of judgment, um, it is in that context that people, the, the, the righteous will be told to enter into eternal life. It's not something they have now. And there's, a, there's another text uh, that I don't have off the top of my head as well. Um, and, and so eternal life is, is something that we have now, but in a particular sense, it's in the sense that we have an inheritance, right? A child whose parents died, has an inheritance, but they haven't obtained it yet, right? They haven't acquired it. It's not until they turn 18, you know, or, or however the legalities work, that they actually acquire the inheritance that they already own. And that's the same with eternal life. It's something that we have in the sense that it's promised for us. In fact, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is a, is a seal, a guarantee that we will sure. receive it. Um, the That's the sense in which we have it now. Yeah. So, so no, I don't right. think that um, those arguments hold any water. And I agree with you. Eternal life means exactly what it sounds like living forever. Right. Right. Um, one eight five five four five zero six six two four. That number again. One eight five five four five zero six 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 two four. If you've got a question for Chris Date or myself on this subject, please give us a call. Uh, open phones. Uh, let us let us know your thoughts on this conversation so far. Where do you stand on this uh, debate, uh, Chris? I do want to go to. I, and I didn't post this. This kind of just 
you know came up to uh, to the top of my head because whenever I made um, a comment about you know researching further into this subject, this has been one of my you know primary focuses um, since we have really started talking about this. Like you and I have had a lot of different uh, discussions, you know, off air about this in particular. And so one of the things uh, that was brought up to me before, and I know you have did videos on this, Chris, um, but just for somebody that maybe hasn't heard uh, your videos or the conditional immortality side of this, I want to go to Revelation 14 um, mm. because we're, we're going to have to go to Revelation 19 as well. <laughs> but I don't want to get ahead of myself, so let's uh, focus on Revelation 14 for right now. And then, Chris, if you would, uh, we got about you know, 10, 15 minutes left. Um, explain why this might be viewed different. So let's uh, let's start in verse 9, I think. <laughs> yeah, verse 9, and I'll just uh, continue again. Revelation 14, verse 9. A third angel followed the first two, declaring in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and takes the mark of his forehead or his hand, that person will also drink the wine of God's anger that has been mixed, undiluted in the cup of his wrath, and he will be tortured with fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the Lamb. And the smoke from their torture will go up forever and ever, and those who worship the beast and his image will have no rest day or night, along with anyone who receives the mark of his name. Now, Chris, obviously, this is teaching eternal conscious torment. What, <laughs> what, what are your thoughts, and how would you explain, or what would you say to someone who brought this text to your attention? Yeah. So um, I have often said, in fact, so often that some people want to make a T-shirt with this exact phrase on it, <laughs> that of, of that the thing that convinced me of conditional immortality more than anything else was that with virtually no exception, every single proof text historically cited in support of eternal torment proves upon closer examination to be better support for conditional immortality and the annihilation of the wicked. And I say that because I mean that, and I mean that with this this text specifically as well, which sounds hard to believe because you do have that language in verse 11 of the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever and having no yeah. rest day or night. I mean, the text absolutely, I think, depicts or portrays everlasting torment. Um, but the question that we have to ask ourselves is not what does the uh, what does John's vision portray, but rather what does the thing it portrays symbolize? Um, you see, what what a lot of people don't realize is that this biblical seers, S E E R, or 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 uh, you know people who receive prophetic visions in Scripture, they don't see the future literally. They don't, it's not like there's a recording of the future that is supernaturally sent back in time and people pop it in a Blu-ray player and watch it on a TV. That's, it, they're not seeing what a camera in the future would see. Rather, the way these kinds of visions or dreams work all throughout scripture, and I mean that all throughout scripture, is that the future is, um, is, is foretold to these prophets by means of incredibly symbolic visions. So you go all the way back to uh, Genesis, for example. And the very first person to receive these kinds of dreams in Scripture is Joseph, um, Joseph, the, the son of Jacob, um, who whose brothers send him into slavery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when when and, and people will recall, and, and by the way, this is just one of numerous examples, and, and I won't belabor the point. I'll just mention this one example. When Joseph is before Pharaoh in Genesis 40, I think it is, um, and and 
Pharaoh asks Joseph to tell him what his dream was and what it meant. Joseph tells Pharaoh that what Pharaoh saw was seven healthy cows come up out of the Nile and then seven sickly or gaunt, thin cows come up out of the Nile and eat the first seven. And then and then he says, but this is what it means. And when he interprets the vision for, for Pharaoh, he says, the seven cows are seven years you see the and and again this is one of uh, one among many examples i could bring to bear in fact i'm not aware of a single case in scripture where a prophet actually sees the future again what they see are symbols that symbolize the future um so when we see here that worshipers of this seven-headed ten-horned beast in revelation are tormented forever and ever and have no rest day or night etc etc we can accept that in the vision john is seeing um beast worshipers are being tormented forever. But the question we have to ask ourselves, just like the question, what did the seven cows in Pharaoh's vision mean? We have to ask ourselves, what does the everlasting torment of this beast worshipers, oh, these beast worshippers mean? And to figure that out, we have to look at how these symbols are used elsewhere. And what's amazing is that when you look at how these, these symbols are used elsewhere in the very same book, they teach exactly what you and I are defending here. So for example, so uh, for example, um, the the drinking of God, uh, the wine of God's wrath in verse 10, the being tormented in fire and sulfur in that same verse, and then smoke of torment going up forever and ever. All three of those symbols converge again just a few chapters later in Revelation 18 and 19. In Revelation 18, there's this mystery Babylon figure, this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute riding on the back of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. And she is made to drink God's wrath. There's one of the three symbols. She is said multiple times to be tormented in fire. So there's a second one of those symbols. And at the beginning of Revelation 19, a chorus cries out, hallelujah, her smoke rises forever and ever. So there's the third symbol. But here's the amazing thing. At the end of Revelation 18, an angel tells John that the imagery, the, the scene in which this, this harlot is tormented in fire and smoke rises from her torment, um, he tells John, that the fate of the city symbolized by mystery of Babylon, whatever city that is, we can, that's a whole nother debate in, in the world of eschatology, that the city she symbolizes will be found no more. It will be brought down with, in violence, reduced to nothing. So, so the point is, is that all of the same imagery we see here in Revelation 14 is, reappears in Revelation 18 and 19, where it symbolizes death and destruction. To suggest that it actually symbolizes, you know, everlasting torment here um, is just completely untenable. There's no reason for thinking that it means one thing just a few verses later and something entirely different here. So in short, that's that's the gist of it. This Yes, the symbolism here and in Revelation 20, by the way, depicts or portrays everlasting torment. But what it symbolizes in reality is death and destruction and annihilation. Going back to Revelation 18, uh, 18, real quick, it says, and begin to shout when they saw the smoke, and, and I don't have the Greek in front of me, so I'm curious about this translation that the NET puts here, so check this out. Uh, let, actually, let's just start where it says, and every ship's captain and all who sail along the coast, seamen and all who make their living from the sea stood along way off and began to shout when they saw the smoke from the fire that burned her up. So that uh, it says, there's a footnote here, and it says Greek from the burning of her. 
uh, for the translation, the smoke from the fire that burned her up, see LNN 14.63. Anyway, so the point is, Chris, what's the Greek there, and does that entail a, like a consuming something that annihilates? No, the, the word here for burning okay. is um, uh, is the noun pudosis. It's not it's not the katakayo that you see um, in, for example, uh, Matthew three twelve. However, if I'm not mistaken, katakayo, which means to burn up, does appear um, in this passage. I just don't think it's here. So give me one second to refresh my memory of where katakayo appears. Um, it's going to be in um let's see here well uh actually hold on give me one more chance here i'll i will get it (laughs) well i i know that on radio people hate dead air so i'm trying to (laughs) um uh uh, i'm trying to keep my my lips moving while i (laughs) while i pull this up yeah so um so uh revelation 17 16 is one of them. Um, so the ten horns of the beast that you saw, and, and they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. And then you also see in Revelation 18, 8, uh, she will be burned up with fire. In both of those two cases, the verb is katakaya, which means to completely destroy, reduce to ashes. But that's not the case with Revelation 18. Uh, Revelation okay. 18, 18. Okay. All right. Thank you for being clear on that. I want to, if we have... Just a second. I want to go to Matthew ten twenty eight because I know it's on everybody's mind probably at this point. God, Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, I was reading a book, uh, Eternal, uh, De- or Eternal Torment or Eternal Destruction by uh, A.W. Pink. And he says that basically, I don't have the quote in front of me, I'll post it in the description. But basically what he's saying is that because it says he is able to destroy <laughs> entails that he won't actually, you know, do that, that it will be something completely different. Christine, are you familiar with what I'm talking about or? Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. It's, it's, it's just the claim. And, and you hear this often that all yeah. Jesus is doing is saying that God can destroy the soul, not that he actually will. Right, right. So what is your answer to that in, in, in particular in this? And I know we could go on, like you did a whole, you, I think it was two-hour video on this uh, text going through Matthew and everything like that. And I recommend anybody check that out. But just real quick, what would your answer be to somebody who brings this text to you? Well, so there are two points I think worth making. Firstly, regarding sure. the language of ability. Um, the, the, it's true that all Jesus explicitly says is that God is the one who can do this. However, um, firstly, he's just he's talking to people who are facing the very real threat of being killed. Um, to suggest that he's going from what they are going to face, or at the very least very well may face, to something that will never happen, but oh, you should be scared of God because he could do it, just yeah. strains credulity. Um, moreover, he might as well say, fear God who can turn you into a chicken, right? It's not going to happen, but you should still fear him because that's what he could do. I mean, this is nonsense. This is game playing. But, but more importantly than that, um, Matthew and Luke both record Jesus's words here, but with some very some slight differences. I don't remember off the top of my head exactly where in Luke um, the parallel is, is to this. Maybe one of you guys can find it while I'm talking. But in the parallel in Luke, Jesus, uh, Luke records Jesus saying, "Fear him who, after he kills, can throw you into Gehenna." 
Now, the reason why this is important is because Jesus didn't say these two different things, and Matthew just happened to record one of them and Luke recorded the other. No, Jesus said one thing, and that one thing he said is equally captured. You know, the gist of what he said, the message he was giving is equally captured by both Matthew's rendition, God can destroy both the soul and body in hell, and Luke's rendition, he, you know, he can uh, cast you into Gehenna. And and what's important is that we have many texts in the Synoptic Gospels which indicate that God not only can cast into Gehenna but will. Right. So and what, that text. So what? So what Jesus is saying, God can do, He will do. Right. And that text was Luke twelve four. And thank you, Chris, for coming on the Complete Sinners Guide. We appreciate it so much. Next week we're going to take a break, and we'll be back the following week. So thank you guys for tuning in. God bless, and have a safe night. See ya. 